Hello, listeners. Matt here. Hey, are you Pottern Family? Go on Twitter and search the hashtag Pottern Family or follow at Pottern Family to find a bevy of great podcasts, including this one. That's hashtag Pottern Family or at Pottern Family on Twitter. Part of the Rewatching Good Television Podcast Network, it's the Sorkin Cast. Here's your host, Matthew Murdick. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Sorkin Cast. Thanks for finding your way back here. We're finally back. And because while we were watching season one of the newsroom, you all voted to go back to West Wing. We're this season we are covering West Wing season three. And we're starting out with the actually kind of a, a episode that wasn't actually planned. It was the episode that they aired uh, called Isaac and Ishmael. We're still going to call it season three, episode one. And we're going to call it, uh, you know, just put it in the regular run of the order because that's the way Netflix does it. But uh, this episode wasn't intended because it was written as a response to 9-11. Um, and we'll talk more about that in just a couple moments. But in the meantime, my name is Matt Murdick. I am from SorkinCast.wordpress.com. That's where you can find all of the back episodes of the podcast. You can find contact links and podcatcher links. And if you would take the time to leave me a review on whatever podcast app that you use, I would very, very much appreciate it. It helps this podcast stay noticeable. And when we get to our feedback podcast, which will be about halfway through this season, after season three, episode 12, then we will uh, thank people who have left reviews over the past few months and up to that point, which reminds me your deadline for getting any kind of feedback to me regarding the first 12 episodes of season three of West Wing is May 23rd of 2017. That's a Tuesday. Get all of your feedback regarding any of the episodes, season three, episode one through episode 12 by that time. And uh, we will go from there. Um, also just like we voted to come back to West Wing this time around our poll, our what's next poll, where you get to decide what season we cover next of Sorkin's work that will open on April 4th and will close on June 6th. It'll be in the what's next tab at SorkinCast.wordpress.com. And, uh, I'll put the poll open on April 4th and you have it's up until June 6th to vote for what season of what show you would like to cover next. Uh, I'll keep reminding you that as we get closer. And also, don't forget that by the time we finish Season 3, which is still quite a ways away, but we have our, in our second feedback for Season 3, we will have the Season 3 West Wing Awards, and that's where you submit your favorite and least favorite episode of season three, your favorite and least favorite scene of season three, your favorite and least favorite main character of season three, and your favorite and least favorite guest star of season three. We always get some nice submissions on those. Now, as I mentioned, this episode is not particularly part of the actual, what do you call it, canon, so to speak, of West Wing. It was written as a response to the 
9-11 tragedy, and so the episode summary is this. Aaron Sorkin creates a teleplay where several members of the White House staff answer questions about terrorism from schoolchildren, while Leo deals with a potential terrorist threat within the White House. Uh, the episode was written by Aaron Sorkin. It was directed by Christopher Missiano, and it first aired on October 3rd, 2001. So 9-11 had just happened, and in less than a month, they had created this episode, uh, which is pretty remarkable and, and just shows the kind of fervor um, and the kind of uh, the way that Sorkin was affected. He really wanted to get this message out there in the wake of 9-11. Now, there wasn't any real walk and talks in this. It's, again, because they were shooting this in such a short period of time and writing it in such a short period of time, they pretty much just stuck to one or two sets where nobody was really walking and talking through all of the sets. It's really just centered around the cafeteria and also um, Leo's office or the place where they are interrogating uh, the White House employee. And so uh, since there was no walk and talk, what I did was I added a little bit of extra time to each of our five clips as we went along to make it better that way. But I did include some quick jabs, and that's one of our segments where that people often joke with each other in the times that they can, uh, and they make either personal or political or professional or, or humorous uh, jokes with each other or humorous quotes from the episode. Uh, we do have some of those, and so enjoy. I don't know about Irving Berlin, but your ridiculous search for rational reasons why somebody straps a bomb to their chest is ridiculous. You just called me ridiculous twice in one sentence. Hardly a record for me. And you just made my list. Nothing happens on the list. It's a serious list, but she does have a point, albeit college girlish. Watch now as he's going to put me down and make my point at the exact same time. Kill them all. Yeah. All the Islamic extremists. No, no, I, I mean everyone. You're all bothering me. I want to be left alone. Clearly, the only way that's going to happen is to be alone. So I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to let you all go. Except the Yankees and the Knicks. <laughs> the Yankees and the Knicks are going to need someone to play. So keep the Red Sox and the Lakers and the Laker girls and the Palm. And we'll need to keep the people who work at the Palm. That's it, though. The, the Yankees, the, the Red Sox, the Knicks, the Lakers, the Laker girls, and anyone who works at the Palm. Sports, Laker girls, and well-prepared steak. That's all I need. Sometimes I like to mix it up with Italian and Chinese. All right, you can all stay, but don't bug me. You're on probation. Don't forget, I was this close to banishing you. This is Toby Ziegler, and actually, he's in charge of crafting our message to the public. And today, that message is. Don't bug me? That's right. Yeah. Pinnacle's a card game? Yeah, I've changed my mind again. Kill them all. Laker girls? No. All right. Yeah, but weren't we terrorists at the Boston Tea Party? Nobody got hurt at the Boston Tea Party. Only people got hurt are some fancy boys who didn't have anything to wash down their crumpets with. They jumped out from behind bushes while the British came down the road in their bright red jackets, but never has a war been so courteously declared. It was parchment with calligraphy, and your highness, we beseech on this day in Philadelphia to bite me, if you please. No. No, 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 no. You've walked into quicksand. You don't ask CJ about the CIA? You just don't do it. CJ has a bizarre affection for the intelligence community that we just bizarre? don't. Bizarre? How about right? OK. This song is called CIA, Our Maligned Little Brother. Oh, god. 
There's nothing more American than coalition building. The first thing John Wayne always did was put together a posse. It's a hell of an example, CJ. Shouldn't you be thinking of ways to find aid and comfort for our boys in intelligence? You know, they may need some comforting right now. When this crash is over, you best get in some fishnets and head to a bar. I will. I love how grumpy Toby is. Toby's always so grumpy. Uh, the, the, Toby's one of my favorites. In, in case you're new to this podcast, uh, you will learn quickly that Toby is one of my favorites uh, out of the West Wing cast. He uh, he has some of the most best moments to me. Now, some of you may have noticed that I didn't give a, a Geos ranking for this episode like I have done in, in times past, seasons past. And that's because Geos no longer exists. And I thought I had a saved copy of uh, the rankings and that computer died <laughs> since the last time we talked. So I and I had I didn't have it backed up. That's my bad. I'm an idiot that way sometimes. I just think, oh, it'll be there forever. No, no, and I'm not smart enough to know how to retrieve information from a dead computer. In fact, the computer, I think, is now, uh, you know, has been dismantled. Somebody else probably has the list, along with all of my other, you know, private emails and, and, and all kinds of top-secret stuff. Well, not so top-secret, really. Pretty Pretty average. Anyway... There's your quick jabs for you, and with that, let's get into our uh, first clip description. Uh, and again, this this episode uh, was very poignant, very powerful uh, for a lot of people who needed healing after 9-11. And, and this episode does a great job of voicing the anger and frustration and fear of many Americans at that time, as well as offering a reasonable response to what was going on as well. But in clip one, actually before the clip starts, off clip, an alias is kicked out by a computer in regards to a terrorist investigation. And then on clip, Josh finds out that he has to talk to students for presidential classroom, but a security breach isolates him with the students in the cafeteria. He starts fielding questions from the kids regarding security and terrorism. I'm going home. It's only five. Yeah, I'm heading home. You can't go yet. You have to talk to the students. What students? From presidential classroom. What are you talking about? They're high school kids from across the country who are accepted for, I don't know, they come to Washington for four days. They get to meet with interesting people, and you're one of them. What did, when did this get on my schedule? It's been there. No, it hasn't. It just, there isn't anybody else who can do this? It's supposed to be you. Station one, code black, crash. Sorry, listen, something's about to happen. Don't let it frighten you. They need to seal the building. Stay where you are, please. Everybody, please, stay where you are. Mr. Lyman, are these kids with you? Security line. Yeah, I guess they are. Something's happened. Okay, uh, well, uh, this is called a crash. It means there's been some kind of security breach and no one's allowed in or out of the building. So I guess we should use this time. Um, this is the White House, the home of the president and the executive branch, the most powerful of the three branches of the federal government. Yeah. Actually, Mr. Lyman, isn't it true that the framers made sure that the executive branch was the weakest of the three branches? Because we were breaking off from the royalist model that put absolute power in just one place. What's your name? I'm Billy Fernandez. OK, I'll call you Fred. A little knowledge can be a dangerous thing. I don't know how long we're all going to be here, but you just made my list. 
Yes, I suppose technically, constitutionally, the legislative branch is the most powerful, but we get a motorcade, so back off. Do you get scared coming to work at the White House? No. I mean, we're bystanders, basically, and we work around a lot of people who routinely put themselves in harm's way, the Secret Service and the military. You know, in the protection detail, they practice a thousand different scenarios for a gun. Who tackles the president, who opens the car, who's covering the perimeter. And there's one guy whose job it is to stand in front of the bullet. Not get the shooter, stand in front of the bullet. I've seen them do it. Do you ever think about quitting? No. Well, my, uh, my mother wants me to. <laughs> my family members have a habit of uh, dying before you're supposed to. So it's just me and my mom now. And you guys know, I guess, that I got accidentally shot a little bit or, or something in Rosslyn. So she'd like to see me in the private sector. But I tell her, my government salary may not be a lot, but I still make more than the guy whose job it is to stand in front of the bullets. So how do I tell him I'll quit? So why is everybody trying to kill us? It's not everybody. It seems like everybody. It's just the Arabs. Saying the Arabs is too general. It's Islamics. It's not Arabs. It's not Islamics. They're juniors and seniors? Yes. Answer the following question. Islamic extremist is to Islamic as blank is to Christianity. The Christian fundamentalists? No. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses? No. Guys, the Christian right may not be your cup of tea, but they're not blowing stuff up. Islamic extremist is to Islamic as blank is to Christianity. It's the Klan gone medieval and global. It couldn't have less to do with Islamic men and women of faith of whom there are millions upon millions. Muslims defend this country in the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, National Guard, police, and fire departments. So let's ask the question again. Why are Islamic extremists trying to kill us? That's a reasonable question if ever I heard one. Why are we targets of war? It's probably a good idea to acknowledge that they do have specific complaints. I, I hear them every day. <laughs> the people we support, troops in Saudi Arabia, sanctions against Iraq, support for Egypt. It's not just that they don't like Irving Berlin. What's Islamic extremism? It's strict adherence to a particular interpretation of 7th century Islamic law as practiced by the Prophet Muhammad. And when I say strict adherence, I'm not kidding around. Now, as we all know, the West Wing is actually set in kind of an alternate universe. Like the, the election cycle is two years different from, for presidents, is two years different from our own worlds. Um, and that makes, makes it fun. But then they always bring in real world issues uh, from our own universe and address those same issues. And this episode is probably more real world than any other issue that the show had addressed to date at this point. I mean, directly hitting, heading on 9-11. We've talked about other issues before, and Sorkin has, of course, put his own slants on it. And Sorkin definitely puts his own slant on this one. He generates a lot of reason. He generates a lot of fear. He generates a lot of how personal this tragedy was for many Americans. And um, again, remember, they had to use a limited number of sets simply because they had a short turnaround. Uh, they put this episode out October 3rd. Typically takes 11 days to shoot an episode, I think, 11 work days. 
you know, and then you have to edit and you have to do all of that. So the, the preparation for this episode, of course, was very minimal. They had to do it between 9-11 and October 3rd. That's less than a month. And uh, it was beautifully done because actually by placing it in these just this few number of sets, it feels more like a personal talk with these characters and the way that 9-11 is affecting them. And and using the uh, the the kids to pose the questions that all of us as Americans were asking at the time and have Josh give responses to that um, was really kind of a therapy session for anybody who was watching the show at this time, I can only imagine. So uh, it was a brilliant way to do it, in my opinion. And I, I cut most of the whole bit about Josh, Josh's like emergency box that his mom gave him. Um, that, that was a beautiful touch though. Um, there's a couple of instances in this episode where there is some really personal stuff and that, that's what a tragedy does. It, it, it makes you reflect on those personal things, you know? Um, this is a world of fear at this time and you start thinking about your mom and your dad. Like in the case where Josh talks about family members who die before they're supposed to, he's clearly talking about his dad. And I really felt like Brad Whitford did a, really an extraordinary job conveying that moment of, of Josh's worry for his mom. And the fact that she is still worrying about him as well. And it, it was a great way to show that even though we found a way to, to find some fortitude and more or less flipped our middle finger at the terrorists at nine of, of nine 11, um, shortly after it happened, we all had these moments of being scared, being unsure. And, uh, man, the, the, dem, that was demonstrated by the writing of, of the kids questions as, as well as, as that moment for Josh, where you could just see all of the weight on his face. Brad Woodford did a fantastic job. And as for the kid who, who corrected Josh about the branches, um, that kid who did a, a pretty good job throughout the whole episode with some really wordy lines. And even though this is kind of supposed to be a presidential classroom group, I mean, having kids as smart as the, the rest of the cast um, acting these parts uh, would seem to be a little bit of a stretch. But I'm going to let that slide because you have the kids basically just asking the questions. Um, but a very powerful opening salvo. And um, right away, Sorkin does try to reason out. It's like the people that did this horrible, horrible thing aren't representative of a whole culture. And that line about the um, Islamic extremists being to, to Muslims as, um, you know, the KKK is to Christian right was so spot on. And today we live in a world where there is a lot of fear going on. There's a ton of fear going on because these kinds of logics are being dismissed. We're punishing a whole culture, and I'll try not to get too political, but I, I really, this episode really brings it home for me. You can't punish a whole culture for the actions of a few criminals. You just can't. Uh, and I love that that point was brought up. And Sorkin has a very close tie to New York. He was extremely hurt 
by what happened at 9-11. He was extremely angry, and yet he still found that line of reasoning to give to the audience at that time, uh, an audience that needed it at that time. Okay, I'm off my soapbox. Uh, clip two, and this is Josh explains why the terrorists hate America, and Secret Service head Ron Butterfield briefs Leo on why the security crash happens and takes him to meet Rakeem Ali in the questioning room. Meanwhile, in the cafeteria, Josh recruits Toby to help out with presidential classroom, and Sam chimes in as well. So what bothers them about us? This is a plural society. That means we accept more than one idea. It offends them. So what do we do now? What? What do we do now? Well, I think for help with that question, we're going to need some people smarter than I am. Definitely. The thing is, that's pretty tough to find. But I'm going to go upstairs and see if I can get some of my friends to come down and join us. Five hours ago, Karam Sharif was taken into custody while crossing from Ontario into Vermont. There was a warrant for his arrest in connection with an attempted bombing at LaGuardia. Turning state's evidence over to the U.S. attorney, he named several co-conspirators, one of whom was Yarun Nabi. A preliminary check in the NCIC kicked out five aliases, one of which was Rakim Ali. There are three Rakim Ali's. One's a software designer in Spokane. Another is a caterer in Los Angeles. Who's the third? He works in the White House. It was only a matter of time, huh? Yeah. Have you ever heard of Kudam Sharif? Yes. He was arrested in connection with an attempted bombing of uh, one of the New York airports. I think he may have also been arrested once in Patterson, New Jersey. Patterson means something to you? I, I was born there. Where did you go to school? Massachusetts Institute of Technology. I have a bachelor's degree in applied mathematics. You know who I am? Of course I know who you are. Islamic extremist is to Islamic as KKK is to Christianity. That's, that's about right. That's a good religious analogy. What's a political analogy? What's an analogy using governments? They don't have a government. They're the Taliban. They're the government of Afghanistan. Taliban isn't the recognized government of... Afghanistan, the Taliban took over the recognized government of Afghanistan. And there's your political analogy. What do you mean? When you think of Afghanistan, think of Poland. When you think of the Taliban, think of the Nazis. When you think of the citizens of Afghanistan, think of Jews in concentration camps. A friend of my dad's was at one of the camps. He used to come over to the house, and he and my dad used to shoot some pinochle. He said he once saw a guy at the camp kneeling and praying. He said, what are you doing? Guy said, he was thanking God. And my dad's friend said, what could you possibly be thanking God for? He said, I'm thanking God for not making me like them. Bad people can't be recognized on sight. There's no point in trying. Actually, we already covered that. It's worth covering twice, don't you agree? I do. What was the first act of terrorism? What was the first act of terrorism? I could answer, but I, I think he's asking you, man. 
I, uh, I know it's not new. I know in the 11th century, I'm gonna have trouble pronouncing this, in the 11th century, secret followers of Al-Hassan Ibn al-Sabah, who were taught to <clears throat> believe in nothing and dare all, carried out these very swift and very treacherous murders of fellow Muslims, and they did it in a state of religious ecstasy. Ah, temptation. I have named thee, and thy name is woman. This is Sam Seaborn, Deputy Communications Director. Now, uh, don't be frightened when I tell you now that in this room, Sam is the knowledgeable terrorism expert. The good news is that in this government, we have some extremely knowledgeable terrorism experts. I heard I was needed. I came. We were talking about Al... Am I pronouncing this right? Al-Hassan Ibn al-Sabah? Yeah, from the 11th century. Yeah. By the way, the Arabic name for their secret order has survived until today. Can anybody guess what it was, the Arabic name? You know. Assassins. Assassins. That's right. Yeah, we don't call on him. <laughs> Toby. I mean, that political analogy was really a good one. And again, you have this personal connection. He's thinking about his own father as well. All of these characters are thinking about their families because of the uncertainty in the wake of 9-11. I mean, both Josh and Toby have now related their own fears and morals about this in relation to family. Um, A very, very human reaction. And I, of course, was alive during 9-11. I'm assuming most of you who listen to this podcast were, but uh, the first thing that I did was call home to make sure that my mom and dad were okay uh, as all of this was happening. And I asked them if they knew if my sister was okay. And granted, none of them were even remotely close to the horror that was happening, but I called anyway. And then I called my girlfriend uh, at the time to to make sure that she was okay. It's what you do. It's just um, the things that you love, you feel like are being torn away from you. And I I love that Sorkin found a way to bring that into the episode and how even in the wake, uh, uh, you know, not quite, but almost a month later, these characters are still thinking about their families. Now, the Rakeem Ali thing, uh, that was another cautionary tale that Sorkin had already seen developing early post 9-11 um, because he, he obviously wrote it in. I, I mean, he must have, have seen this, you know, the kind of hate that was going towards most Muslim people. And I'm not going to deny that seeing this episode this year with some of the, you know, campaign ideas that we heard in the last election and, and seeing some of the actions being taken already. Um, I mean, it just made me realize how relevant the way this guy is treated uh, alarmingly. So, And uh, most of this evidence right now is completely circumstantial. It could be either one of the other two guys. But uh, I'll get more into that later. Um, As for Sam, well, you know, we've learned over the last two seasons of West Wing that he is the smart one in the room. Uh, We've been told that many times. And I, of course, put one of his best lines of his stuff in, in the quick jabs. But as to that, I, I just wanted to comment that the way that he speaks about the Declaration of Independence and the Boston Tea Party was really good. And if, if you recall from uh, the somebody's going to a uh, hospital, somebody's going to jail episode, I mean, that same kind of patriotism was in play when he talked to Donna about the girl's grandfather. 
But there is more Sam from where that comes from. So let's get into clip three, where Sam continues to take questions. Leo begins interrogating Rakeem Ali himself, and it heats up. And CJ and Toby debate safety versus liberty. You know a lot about terrorism? I dabble. What are you struck by most? It's 100% failure rate. Really? Not only do terrorists always fail at what they're after, they pretty much always succeed in strengthening whatever it is they're against. What about the IRA? The Brits are still there. Protestants are still there. Basque extremists have been staging terrorist attacks in Spain for decades with no result. Left-wing red brigades from the 60s and 70s, from Bader-Meinhof gang in Germany to the weathermen in the U.S. have tried to overthrow capitalism. You tell me, how's capitalism doing? What about nonviolent protests? What about it? Well, it worked for Gandhi. Yeah, it did. Who else did it work for? The civil rights movement. That's right. Can I go back to what you were saying at the beginning? Yeah. About it being 100% ineffective. Yeah. They're still doing it anyway. Yeah. They're not frustrated by the failure. No. Well, what do you call a society that has to just live every day with the idea that the pizza place you're eating and can just blow up without any warning. Israel. Last year, your father made a contribution to something called the Holy Land Defender. Were you aware of the contribution? Mr. McGarry, I understand the need for these questions, and I hope you notice I've been cooperating, but if you drag my father into this pitiful exercise, I'm afraid I'm going to get angry. I don't think you understand the seriousness of what's happening right now. I don't think you do. We need spies, human spies. Spy satellites are great if you're trying to detect whether or not Khrushchev's put missiles in Cuba, but you want to overhear a conversation over Turkish coffee in Kuiper Pass, you need a spy. You guys want to get great jobs after college and serve your country? Study Arabic, Chinese, and Farsi. Maybe this would be a good time for a chorus of our maligned little brother, Civil Liberties. Liberty Schmiberties. C.J. Craig, ladies and gentlemen. You know of a way to do this without tapping some phones? What about illegal searches? What about profiling? You know what Benjamin Franklin said? He said, hey, look, I've invented the stove. He said they that can give up essential liberty to obtain a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Well, I don't think we're talking about a little temporary safety, and it's not like we need to search high and low for clear and present danger. Well, what would you say the point of fighting terrorism is? It's to ensure freedom, Pokey. I don't need the brochure. I think you do, because during times of great crisis and threat, America has used draconian measures before, and I think maybe you've forgotten just how effective they've been. Can you name some? The blacklist. I want her to name them. The blacklist. Thank you. Look, I take civil liberties as seriously as anybody, okay? I've been to the dinners, and we haven't even talked about free speech yet and somebody getting lynched by the patriotism police for voicing a minority opinion. That said, Tobus, we're going to have to do some stuff. We're going to have to tap some phones, and we're going to have to partner with some people who are the lesser of evils. I'm sorry, but terrorists don't have armies and navies. They don't have capitals. Some of these guys, we're going to have to walk up to them and shoot them. Yeah, we can root terrorist nests, but some of these guys aren't going to be taken by the 105th Armored Tank Division. Some of these guys are going to be taken by a busboy with a silencer. So it's time to give the intelligence agencies the money and the manpower they need. We don't hear about their successes. Guess what? The Soviets never crossed the Elba. The North Koreans stayed behind the 38th parallel during the millennium. Not one incident. You think that's because the terrorists decided that'd be a good day to take off? Not much action that day? End of song. 
Yes, and the charges were dropped. You were arrested for holding a rally without a permit. I had a permit. It hadn't processed, and the charges were dropped. What were you protesting? The presence of U.S. troops in Saudi Arabia. You went to Edison High School in Patterson, correct? Correct. On December 3rd, 1994, someone called in a bomb threat to the school. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that there were bomb threats. I remember that there were more than one, but I don't remember the exact dates. According to your transcripts, police questioned you. Yeah. It's on my school transcript, because I wasn't arrested. So what'd they ask you? They asked me if I called in a bomb threat, which I didn't. Did you know who did? It was a couple of football players that didn't want to take a chem final. So it was a couple of football players, but... They called you in any way. It's not uncommon for Arab Americans to be the first suspected when that sort of thing happens. I can't imagine why. Look. No, I'm trying to figure out why anytime there's terrorist activity, people always assume it's Arabs. I'm racking my brain. I don't know the answer to that, Mr. McGarry, but I can tell you that it's horrible. Well, that's the price you pay. Excuse me? The price I pay for what? Continue the questions. Now, when we get into civil rights and that kind of thing, Sorkin, of course, is going to take his slant and he's going to put it into the mouths of some of his favorite characters like Toby. The cool thing about this episode is that he did present the other points as well. And he gave some of those points to CJ. All of the points are being brought to the table. And there obviously were and and probably still are many people in this country who continue to think the way CJ does in this scene. And I don't know if it's entirely inappropriate if you're going after someone who is unequivocally guilty. But the point of the interrogation scenes getting more intense is Sorkin's way of showing that going after someone before you know for sure they're guilty is a very dangerous and slippery slope. And it's in this part of the episode where kind of Sorkin cast kind of lets all of the characters get their anger out about the situation. And we were all angry as Americans. We were hurt and we were angry. And it's good to me that Sorkin didn't totally slant things so that you didn't experience that as a viewer because it wouldn't have been nearly as powerful. He directed his episode straight to our emotions. And his moralities may not be yours or someone else's, but he at least brought everything to the table for us to experience. And I'm guessing he did that because he probably felt that himself at one point during the process of writing this. In fact, I'm guessing everything we see in this episode comes from his own personal feelings that he was experiencing. Well, if he's writing this, he has to be writing it probably the week after 9-11. And he's already going through all of these things, these, uh, you know, these tangents. He, he really, what a smart dude. I mean, he basically forecasted a lot of what we were going to see over the next four years. And then you have the anger of Leo as well. I mean, I cut a lot of the Saudi Arabia argument out of the clip. But Leo, I mean, as misplaced as I personally believe his feelings are does represent a raw emotion that I feel like many Americans experienced shortly after 9-11. Fear, prejudice, hate. And I will say that, you know, I thought the actor who played Rakeem Ali did an extraordinary job showing a, a man who had done nothing wrong, but still realizing he was an American and he needed to stand up for himself. 
And of course, John Spencer, I mean, he did so great with his indignance. I mean, that the stuff with Rakeem Ali and Leo was very, very powerful. And I guess finally, as for the bit with Sam that was right up at the front of the clip, I just loved the fact that there was this expression of resignation about the fact that even though he had pointed out how unsuccessful a tool terrorism can be, that it is still going to happen no matter what. And, you know, Sorkin offers kind of a solution to the terrorists as well, you know, peaceful protest. But in today's time, um, you know, with all of the protests that we've seen uh, since the inauguration, uh, it seems like that maybe this is even more relevant today than it was even back then. So um, that really uh, says a lot, uh, again, about Sorkin's belief to being Gandhi, more or less. And that's perfectly fine. Um, you know, I know that there are people out here who are listening to this podcast that are totally for Donald Trump. I know that there are people who are totally against Donald Trump. And all I do is encourage you to express your views, but to do it with conversation and not just hateful slander or not just hateful uh, backlashing and screaming and yelling. Nothing gets done that way. Oh, another political soapbox. Okay, I'm sorry. Let's move on to the next clip. That's clip four, where Charlie the president and first lady give their thoughts to the presidential classroom students and Rakim Ali is finally cleared. Where do terrorists come from? Where do they come from? Everywhere. Mostly they come from exactly where you expect. Places of abject poverty and despair. Horribly impoverished places are an incubator for the worst kind of crime. Which is the same as it is right here. It's the same as it is here. I live in Southeast DC. If you don't know the area, Think Compton or South Central LA, Detroit, the South Bronx, dilapidated schools, drugs, guns, and what else? Gangs. Gangs. Gangs give you a sense of belonging and usually an income, but mostly they give you a sense of dignity. Men are men and men will seek pride. Everybody here has got a badge to wear. I'm the deputy communications director. I made presidential classroom. I know the answer, I'm going to Cornell. You think bangers are walking around with their heads down saying, oh man, I didn't make anything out of my life? I'm in a gang? No, man. They're walking around saying, man, I'm in a gang. I'm with them. Good evening, evening, Mr. President. President. Hello. What the hell's going on? Sir, this is a group of high school students from presidential classroom. Please. You women seem bright and lovely, the men. Disturbingly dense. Ignore him. God knows the rest of us, too. Excuse me. So, we're stuck here, huh? Yes, sir. Well, I live here. <laughs> yes, sir. I'm going back to my office. Nice meeting you all. I'm going to stay here a few minutes. Sir? Yeah? Do you consider yourself a man of principle? I try to be. Well, don't you consider... I mean, I know they're our enemy, but don't you consider there's something noble about being a martyr a martyr would rather suffer death at the hands of an oppressor than renounce his beliefs killing yourself and innocent people to make a point is sick twisted brutal dumbass murder let me leave you with this thought before i go searching for the apples that were rightfully mine we don't need martyrs right now 
We need heroes. A hero would die for his country, but he'd much rather live for it. It's good meeting you all. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you, sir. We found him. Where? Germany. Mr. Ali, you're free to go. Thank you. Thank you. You know what, Mr. McGarry? You have the memory of a gypsy moth. When you and the president and the president's daughter and about a hundred other people, including me, by the way, were met with a hail of 44 caliber gunfire and Rosalind, not only were the shooters white, they were doing it because one of us wasn't. How did all this start? Sarah. God said to Abraham, look toward the heaven and number the stars, and so shall your descendants be. But Abraham's wife, Sarah, wasn't getting any younger, and God wasn't coming through on his promise. Sarah was getting older, and she was getting nervous because she didn't have any children. So she sent Abraham to the bed of her maid, Hagar, and Abraham and Hagar had Ishmael. And not long after they did, God kept his promise to Sarah, as he'd always intended to. And Abraham and Sarah had Isaac. And Sarah said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman will not be heir with my son Isaac. And so it began. The Jews, the sons of Isaac. The Arabs, the sons of Ishmael. But what most people find important to remember is that in the end, the two sons came together to bury their father. Excuse me, ma'am. We're clear. Well, that's that then. It was good talking with you guys. Hang in there. The question of basically where terrorists come from and, and why they do what they do was really interesting uh, in this part of it. And it, it was great to see the comparison to gangs made by Charlie. Uh, that was a very poignant moment for me. I mean, Sorkin has really worked out how to represent every different aspect of these issues at hand through his characters. I mean, it's just brilliant. And the fact that he probably did this within, again, a week. I'm betting he was writing this episode the week after 9-11. He had to in order for the production to be able to be done by October 3rd. I, I mean, the guy was on a tear. And yet he didn't just let his emotion pour out. He did let some of his emotion pour out through the characters. But he also let reason pour out through the characters as well. And I, I just loved that. And uh, it was a very small bit for the president. But it, it was very poignant in regards to martyrdom versus, you know, terrorism or, or hero, heroism versus terrorism. Um, I, I think that uh, those words uh, were the words that we all needed to hear. But the most poignant and, and frankly hopeful point that Sorkin makes in this episode is delivered, of course, by Abby. The idea that Isaac and Ishmael coming together to bury their father is, is of course, what we all want. Nobody wants terrorism. Nobody wants to have to be a terrorist. Um, nobody wants to have to fight it, to have to decide how to fight it, uh, but to have the hope for the world that seems probably a little utopian. Still, I, I, I think the point is that 
you have to shoot for the utopia in order to find a place where we can all be as close to that as possible, right? And Sorkin makes a great point of showing us how we must be careful as to how we fight terrorism and our own fear and prejudices about anything, really, through the uh, Rakim Ali statement. I mean, there is a pride and a dignity that not even the belittlement of what happened to him can shake. And you have to hope that anyone who was wrongfully accused of something would be the way he was. Um, Be that a white American, an African American, uh, be that uh, a Muslim American, an Asian American. Uh, No matter what, if you're wrongfully accused, stand up for yourself. And uh, exercise the rights, the wonderful rights that this country has given us. We are innocent until proven guilty. God, I got to stop with these political things. All right, uh, here we go. Clip five, the final clip. With the all clear, Josh sends the presidential classroom kids off and Leo apologizes to Rakeem Ali. Well, all right. That's it then. Can I ask one more question? Yeah. Do you favor the death penalty? No. But you think we should kill these people? You don't have the choices in a war that you do in a jury room. But I, I, I wish... Well, she didn't have to. I think death is too simple. What would you do instead? I'd put them in a small cell and make them watch home movies of the birthdays and baptisms and weddings of every single person they killed over and over, every day, for the rest of their lives. <clears throat> and then they'd get punched in the mouth every night at bedtime by a different person every night. There'd be a long list of volunteers, but it's all right. We'll wait. But listen, I, I don't worry about all this right now. We got you covered. Worry about school. Worry about what you're going to tell your parents when you break curfew. You're going to meet guys. You're going to meet girls. Not so much you, friend. <laughs> Learn things. Be good to each other. Read the newspapers. Go to the movies. Go to a party. Read a book. In the meantime, remember pluralism. You want to get these people? I mean, you, you really want to reach in and kill them? where they live, keep accepting more than one idea. Makes them absolutely crazy. Go. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. It was fun. Don't steal anything on the way out. Okay. Bye-bye. Billy, listen. Nothing. Keep doing what you're doing. Okay. Okay. See ya. That's the price you pay for having the same physical features as criminals. That's what I was going to say. I'm kidding. I'm sorry about that. Also about the crack I made about teaching Muslim women how to drive. I think if you talk to people who know me, they tell you that that was unlike me, you know? We're obviously all under um, a greater than usual amount of, you know? And like you pointed out with this shooting and everything,
Hey, kid. Way to be back at your desk. As I've watched this series, I've kind of come to the conclusion that Josh is more or less Sorkin himself in a lot of ways. I thought for a long time that maybe he was Sam, but I really feel like he is Josh. And it really hits home in this episode to me. I mean, first, when you look back at the very beginning in regards to Josh's reluctance to even talking to the kids at all, it almost seems like that was Sorkin himself saying that he wished he didn't have to do this episode, but that this episode was necessary. And in this clip, the re-emphasizing of pluralism, and especially what Josh would do to the terrorists if he could, I mean, that sounds very much like a, a personal wish of Sorkin's to me. I mean, he, like all of us, was very affected by the events of 9-11, and the actions in its aftermath. Um, to me, this is kind of him speaking directly through Josh, maybe even more so than in normal episodes. And the whole bit with the kid was great. Um, he showed that the kid is basically a young Josh uh, throughout the episode. I didn't address the kid. The, the, kid, the acting of the kids was just okay. you know. But what do you expect? It's short notice. It's short time to, to cast... Uh, speaking parts for for young actors, and you can't expect too much. Um, so I give all of that a slide. Um, but I thought that that was really a great moment where he just told the kid to keep doing what he was doing. Um, and in the, in that way, Sorkin was again demonstrating something within himself to try and encourage the young people to keep from feeling the hate that he probably felt himself. You know, I mean, parents are often what they're they're kind of hypocritical right? Don't do that, even though you see me do that five minutes later, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but I, I, I just loved um, the whole message of this episode. Now, as for the Leo and Rakim Ali thing, Leo is the representation of something that I think many of us were guilty of. Too quick to judge and, and fumbling for justification. But at least Leo did try to apologize. And his realization that the guy had gone straight back to work, didn't leave in a fury, you know, had said his piece and then kept his dignity. I mean, Rakim Ali was a much bigger person than I think I could have been in that situation. And, and maybe that's a little utopian as well. But at least Sorkin had Rakim just stare at Leo and make Leo uncomfortable confronting his own prejudices at the time. Uh, I thought that that was a beautiful touch. And I guess that's all I have to say for that clip, so let's get to my rating. This episode is easily a nine for me. I mean, you don't need to really even know a single thing about these characters to understand, you know, where where they stand and where Sorkin stood on any of this stuff. Um... I can't really go higher than a nine, uh, but it's an easy episode to understand where some of these characters are coming from. It's, uh, it's, out, it's really outside of the realm of the story, because if you went to the very next episode, um, you'd be completely lost, right? So uh, I probably shouldn't give it a nine because of whether it would introduce you to a, a good 
uh, could be a good introduction to the series. But um, I think that uh, as its own piece, though, it's something that every American should watch. Um, even if you don't watch the rest of the series, I feel like this is something that every American should watch because it encapsulated a turbulent time and we continue to have turbulent times. Um, and I, I think that there's a great message in here, but that's enough for that. And next week we'll get back into the main story of West Wing that left off with season two with season three, episode two, Manchester part one. And you can contact the podcast, of course, via all of the contact information that you're going to get. Don't forget, we have the feedback deadline of May 23rd, 2017, and the polls for what we cover after we cover season three of West Wing will be available from April 4th, 2017 to June 6th, 2017. So be sure when those open up to get your vote in. Also, don't forget to send me your favorites and least favorites of like your scene, your episode, your main character, your guest star for the West Wing Awards. That's still quite a ways off, um, but uh, we'll do that after we conclude our coverage of season three. In the meantime, this is Matt. Thanks for listening and take care. Find all of the back episodes, links, and more information at sorkincast.wordpress.com. Leave the podcast a written review at our iTunes or Stitcher store pages. To submit feedback, send emails to sorkincast at gmail.com or call 314-669-1840. The Sorkin cast is a member of the Rewatching Good TV network.